Milk minute, milk minute, milk minute, yeah. This is Maureen Farrell and Heather O'Neill, and this is the Milk Minute. We're midwives and lactation professionals, bringing you the most up-to-date evidence for all things lactation, so you can feel more confident about feeding your baby, body positivity, relationships, and mental health. Plus, we laugh a little or a lot along the way. So join us for another episode. Welcome to the Milk Minute Podcast, everybody. We have a very special, special, special to my family guest today. Yeah, I'm really excited because you went and recorded this interview by yourself. You went on like a little solo field trip and I haven't heard it yet. So I'm really excited. I'm like, I'm like the audience today. <laughs> I know. Well, let me give you a little taste. So um, my husband... Jonathan O'Neill is from Southern West Virginia. And for those of you that just realized that West Virginia is a state (laughs) separate and apart from regular Virginia, this is very common. So don't feel bad. It's a whole state. It's actually a very large state. But don't tell anybody that lives here that you thought that. (laughs) Right, right. Top secret. And also for those of you that just realized that Maureen and I live in West Virginia, welcome to the party. (laughs) We are not... In L.A., we are in West Virginia. (laughs) By God, West Virginia, if you want to be exact. The mountain state. Um, So all those um, stories about hillbillies and, like, wrong turn and no shoes, like, that is where my husband is from. Like, he actually grew up in a holler called Turkey Creek in Wyoming County, which is right next to McDowell County, which gets a lot of bad reputation. It's pretty much the poorest county in the state. I think. Right. Close. McDowell is the poorest county in the state, maybe the whole country. Yeah. This is the place where like a lot of the like anti-poverty campaigns of your were based (laughs) in in like southern West Virginia and eastern Kentucky and all of that. So. Yeah. And it's huge coal mining country. So we have a lot of ghost town kind of situations going on as the mines closed and people are now three generations into welfare and living on government stipends. And it's become very difficult to get out. And also any attempts at bringing industry in has been very difficult because the roads are so impossible to navigate. Yeah, so unfortunately, like a lot of the infrastructure was built solely for the profit of coal companies. And so when they moved out, infrastructure was not maintained. Right. It was not maintained. And also the extreme expense it costs to literally blow up a mountain to put a road on it. Uh, You can't just go up and over these mountains. It's like these things were only built for mountain goats and, you know, human beings that can walk up them. To actually build a road up there is really difficult. And there's been a lot of strip mining Hmm. back in the day uh, where they literally just take the top off the mountain, which has caused a lot of flooding. Dump it in the next valley. Yeah. Right. So it's caused a lot of flooding, a lot of pollution. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just, it's rough. It's rough to build anything on top of unstable ground. Right. And this is the kind of place where like every other hauler has some very longstanding lawsuit over like a cancer cluster because of coal acid mine drainage runoff, like pollution in their waters, pollution in the air. It's a really rough place to live. And I'm really excited to hear from grandma And to give you guys like a little glimpse into that culture and into some of the history around there. Yeah. So 
the thing is that, yes, it's difficult to live there, but the people are tough. Absolutely. They're tough as nails, and they're very private. And so you can thank them for a lot of the labor unions that we have and a lot of your workers' rights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, they are private, so we don't have a lot of coverage about, like, their personal experiences, um, straight from the horse's mouth kind of stuff. So I am very honored that Grandma Alfie, is what we call her, that Grandma Alfie let me sit down with my giant microphone and interview her about what it was like to feed her seven children in Appalachia and also what it was like for her to be fed. So I asked mm-hmm. her questions about how her and her brothers and sisters were fed. So this is like a nice account of um, what it was like from 1930 to 1960 in Appalachia, West Virginia. So before we get into the interview, we've got two patrons to thank, and then we will thank a sponsor quick. Okay, today we would like to thank Nicole Santoro from... Blackwood, New Jersey. Thank you so much, Nicole. She is a lactivist in our Patreon. And also big thank you to Brian Mitchell, who is a new milkmate of ours. And we are very, very excited to have you in our Patreon and give you all of the behind the scenes stuff that we offer. Yeah, thank you guys. If you are interested in joining our community on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash milkminutepodcast. All right, well, we're going to cut to a quick break and then head right into this amazing interview. You guys, breastfeeding for busy moms, my little breastfeeding clinic isn't so little anymore. I'm so excited that not only can people book with you, in person here or virtually, but they can book with the other IBCLCs in your clinic. We also do accept some insurance directly. A lot of insurance will actually pre-approve you for a certain amount of visits, even prenatally. So please head on over to breastfeedingforbusymoms.com and check out the services tab to see if your insurance is approved, book with me or one of my IBCLCs, and we would love to work with you. You can do prenatal consults. What else can they do, Heather? Well, I often work with people who have supply issues. We've got pumping, troubleshooting. We've got preparing to go back to work, weaning, starting solids. We really cover the entire journey. So if you're struggling, stop struggling and just schedule with me or somebody on my team at breastfeedingforbusymoms.com. Dot <laughs> com. Okay, Grandma. First question we have for you is... Tell us your name, and I'd love to hear the story behind your name and the year you were born and where you were born. Uh, <laughs> Alpha Cook. The reason I got this name, I was the first uh, child of my mother and daddy, of course, first grandchild, and the first great-grandchild. So that's why they named you Alpha? Well, what happened at the hospital with your birth certificate. There was some kind of drama with your birth certificate and their spelling. Oh, they misspelled my name and had to get that fixed. How did they spell it? <laughs> uh, A-L-F-I-E oh. is the way they spelled it. Alfie. But, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I had to go through all of that, getting it all changed. And... Uh, I was born at Sabine in 1930, 28th of February. Oh, so you're almost a leap year baby. Yeah. How many brothers and sisters did you have? 
I had uh, four brothers and four sisters. And what did your mom and dad do? Well, my my dad was a coal miner and my mother was a housekeeper. (laughs) Well, I bet when you've got all those kids, there's quite a house to keep. So did you, you had mentioned that your, your grandma was a midwife. Is that right? Well, she delivered babies. I guess that's what you called her, (laughs) midwife. Back then, I don't know what their name was. (laughs) Yeah, how did that usually work in southern West Virginia when people were ready to have a baby? What was protocol for labor and delivery, and did anyone see them for visits while they were pregnant? Or No, not that I recall. They didn't have... uh, Doctors were so scattered, you know, and uh, mostly the women had to do what they could, you know. And uh, back then, most of them worked until they were ready to have their child in the home, of course. And then uh, when they went into labor, they called the ladies to come and deliver their babies and... (laughs) Some of them had to travel a long ways, you know, to deliver the babies. Did you ever go to any of the births? Me? No, I never I did never wanted to see. <laughs> I should have because I had s- seven children, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say they called the ladies, was it the same group of ladies over and over again? Well, um, yeah, they the Midwife always had helpers, you know, mm. and uh, she would get in touch with them. But back then, I tell you, it was really hard for them to travel because they didn't have very good uh, transportation, you know, back then in the 30s. And they had cars, but uh, most people didn't, you know. I imagine the roads in Appalachia were pretty rough, too. Oh, yeah. They were on horseback and uh, buggies and, you know. So what would happen if anything went wrong at any of the births? Well, uh, they did, uh, you know, back then there was a lot of, uh, they lost a lot of women and uh, babies, you know, because they didn't have what they have today to do the deliveries and uh, like I had mine in the uh, first one in 1950 now we had a lot more than what the older people had you know and uh, had clinics for the women to go to to have their babies and uh, we had a maternity clinic in Pineville not too far from where I lived you know so we was taken good care of. <laughs> so whenever you were younger, you had mentioned that you took care of your little brothers and sisters oh, yes. all the time? Oh, yes. Yes, I helped my mother. Uh, I guess you just everybody back then helped their mothers because they had such a hard time, you know, and had to work all the time and uh, keeping the family up and... Uh, so we had to learn to cook, we had to learn to sew, we had to learn change diapers real early and feed children early. And 
Oh, pretty rough life back then. Did your mom breastfeed all of you? My mother breastfed all but one, and he was a premature baby, and she had him on bottle. Well, so what did that look like? Because what year was that that your little brother was born prematurely? Uh, in 47, uh, 1947, I believe, is what year he was born. Do you remember how early he was? Uh, he was uh, almost eight months baby, but uh, and it's the first child she ever had in a hospital. All the rest were born at home. But uh, she always had a doctor, uh, and he was a, my dad was a coal miner, and he's the doctor of the, that took care of the company doctor, uh, was our doctor. Oh, the coal company doctor. Yeah. Okay. But he lived in, down Pineville, you know, where he had, He's the one that built the clinic for uh, the women, you know, maternity women, maternity clinic is what he had. Is is he the source of most of the education that people received about how to feed babies? Like, did that particular doctor teach everybody how to do it? Oh, yeah. The doctors, he was real good. He was uh, a young doctor, and he... Uh, he was come from Virginia and went to, but he was a good medical doctor and he he taught you everything about a child, you know. Told you how to take care of them and uh, how to feed them and everything, and what to do for them when they had a stomach ache. And <laughs> <laughs> so when your little brother had to take a bottle. What did that look like? What did you put in the bottle for a premature baby in 1947? Uh, well, you used uh, carnation milk or pet milk. <laughs> carnation, or what was the second one? Pep something? Pet milk. What's that? It's uh, evaporated milk. Oh. You had to mix it with water. And you had to boil all your nipples and your bottles and... Oh, and uh, all that, you know, just like you did when I had mine. So let's jump forward to when you had your babies. Did you expect that you would be bottle feeding all of yours, or did you plan no, to breastfeed? No, no, I didn't. But I fed them on the breast about two months, and then it just the milk just got so that it wasn't doing them any good. So the doctor put them on the bottle. Part-time on the bottle and part-time on the breast until they got off the breast, you know, until I could take them off, you know. But uh, now my mother, she raised all of hers except that one on the breast. And as far back as I can remember, my grandmothers did too, you know. And then after they were so old, you started feeding them the... Uh, Regular milk. Uh, Do you remember how old they were when they switched to cow's milk? Uh, no, I don't. How about solid foods? When did we introduce solids when you were little versus when you had your kids? Well, I think they were 
before they started on solid foods back then, as far far as I can remember, it was uh, between four and six months old. But uh, when I had mine, you started them on the, the cereal and stuff at three months old, you know. Lots of changes there. Was that all information coming from the doctor that told you at three months we should be doing cereal and stuff yeah. like that? Oh, yes. The doctor's, yeah, from the doctor. Was your mom around whenever you had your babies? Uh, well, she was, yeah, she was around. She, not when they were delivered, but uh, she was alive at that time. And she, and she helped me a lot taking care of them, too, you know, and uh, told me what to do and and what I didn't know already. <laughs> Did she ever argue with the doctor's recommendations? No, no, my mother's a very quiet woman. She uh, took orders, but she didn't give orders. <laughs> gotcha. So what was going on with your babies that the doctor recommended that you switch to a bottle? Were they just not gaining weight? or? Well, they uh, wasn't gaining as much weight as they should have when I had to put them on the bottle, you know. And uh, i uh, tell you the truth about it, I just don't know what happened. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Still to this day. It's such a stressful but, time. Uh, but I went by the doctor's orders, you know, about my children, always. And what milk did you give in a bottle? Was it still the Carnation Instant Milk? Yeah, the uh, and you mixed it with your boiling water. You had to boil everything, you know. And then you used... Uh, Cairo syrup in it to sweeten it a little bit. Not much, but you don't have to sweeten it some. And uh, sterilized everything, boiled everything. I mean, just boiled it real good, you know. <laughs> and uh, filled the bottles up, capped them, and put them in your refrigerator. Get them out and warm them up in a bottle warmer. And uh, it's a lot of work to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a lot of work, for sure. Did you ever have to give vitamin drops in the bottles? Um, yeah, I uh, gave them vitamin drops, but I didn't put it in their bottle. I gave it to them in water, you know, not in a bottle, not in their milk. Um, this interview is amazing so far, and I hate to interrupt it. But I have to do so so we can take a quick break to thank one of our sponsors. And then we're going to get right back into it. I can't wait to listen to the rest. Let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, Aeroflow. Aeroflow is your one-stop shop to get the most popular breast pumps and accessories through your insurance. Yeah, so don't let your insurance go to waste. Why don't you let Aeroflow do all the dirty work for you? You never have to call your insurance when you use Aeroflow. And they remind you when you're eligible for free replacement parts. Yep, so when you're tired in your postpartum period and you're wondering why your pump isn't working as well, you might get a text that says, did you know you need replacement parts? And you say, I did not know that. Right. You push a button and boom, they show up at your door. Thanks, Aeroflow. Thank you so much. Go ahead and check out the link to Aeroflow in our show notes and order your pump through them. 
Heather, have I told you about my new favorite place to get nursing bras? Oh, tell me. It's called the Dairy Fairy. The Dairy Fairy offers bras and tanks that try to solve the challenges that come with nursing and pumping. Their ingenious intimates are beautiful, supportive, and can be worn all day long. Oh, you're allowed to look good and feel good about yourself while wearing a nursing bra? Absolutely. And they offer sizes up to a 52G. <gasps> oh, Amazing. I'm so glad a company has finally realized that a D cup is not a large. Absolutely. And I, it's so affirming to feel included in sizing and not feel like I'm asking for too much that clothing fits my body. Well, what else do we get? Well, if you guys follow the link in our show notes, you can use the code MILKMINUTE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic orders. Thank you so much, Dairy Fairy. Absolutely. Once again, that's the link in our show notes and use the code MILKMINUTE for free shipping on all domestic orders. Did other people that were having babies at the same time as you breastfeed and bottle feed or were mostly people bottle feeding at that point? Well, uh, no, most of them was breastfeeding when I had mine. And I don't know when people went to bottles, I mean, what year it was or anything, but I know people started giving them bottles and when they first were uh, first born, you know. You had mentioned one of your kids had an allergy of some kind. Oh, Sheila had allergies real bad when she was little. She still has them, of course. She's grown now, but yeah, she had uh, earaches and from the allergies and nose running and eyes uh, watering and it was caused from dust and pollen. wasn't didn't come from foods. Oh, I thought you had said that one of your kids was allergic to one of the formulas. No. No, they never was allergic to any formula. Did, do you remember your kids having upset tummies or any... Oh, yes. I had them had upset tum- tummies. <laughs> yeah, a lot of times the colic and, you know, yeah. gas. Had to burp them a lot whenever they, after they ate. I know that. <laughs> do you remember ever thinking that their tummy aches were caused by what they were eating or anything like that? No. Just part of being a baby? Just part of being a baby. <laughs> How did you feed them? Was it more like on a schedule or did they just Oh, eat yeah, whenever? she kept them on a, well, just like they do now, it's a four-hour schedule is what it kept. And so many ounces would, when they were... Uh, uh, small, and then you increased ounces as they got older, you know. And, uh, oh, yeah, you kept them on schedule. If you didn't, they wanted to eat all the time, I've heard people say. <laughs> <laughs> so every four hours, do you remember how much about they would get as far as ounces go? No. I, I can't remember that, uh, <laughs> I think you started them out with four ounces, and you, as they got older, you increased it. But I can't remember how much, you know. Did you have pacifiers back then, little binkies? No, we didn't use pacifiers. How did you hold them off for four hours if they were all crabby? Well, mine didn't seem to be get crabby before they ate. They, 
They didn't wake me up that many times at night, you know, and uh, I don't, uh, most people had to get up real often. Now now my mother got up more often than I ever did to feed hers, you know. Of course, she'd sit in a rocker and breastfeed her babies and rock them. (laughs) Did you sleep with your babies? Huh? Did you sleep with your babies in bed? Uh, no, I never slept with them. But now my mother slept with hers some up until uh, they came out with baby beds and where everybody could buy them, you know, they could afford to buy them, but uh, play pens and, and uh, yeah, my mother slept with hers. But she had a cradle, and we all had cradles when they were little, you know, and kept them in them until they got older, enough to sleep by themselves. Did anybody wear their babies, like in a baby wrap, strapped to their body? No, not any that I can remember. How'd you get anything done before you had play pens and you had stuff to do? <laughs> I think this is the question that everybody has nowadays, is how in the world did you have eight-plus children back in the day and get anything done if you didn't wear them all the time? Well, I can't remember how my mother did before we got old enough to watch the small ones. But I just kept mine in the playroom or whatever they had, you know, to keep them in one place if you had to do any housework or anything, but most of the time they just followed you around. <laughs> I think they still do that. <laughs> Learn, learning everything, I guess. I <laughs> oh, inquisitive kids, they were all like that. Oh, that's funny. So with your, with your mom's kids growing up, you said there were how many, nine of you? Mm-hmm. Wow. Did everybody have that many kids back then? Oh, yeah. um, Had uh, good-sized families. They'd have uh, six. uh, Most people had six. uh, And uh, then my grandmother's, uh, on my dad's side, she had 12. And then uh, my grandmother on my mother's side had uh, 10. A lot and of they babies. were all big families, yeah. <laughs> wow. And did the husbands have anything to do with the kids at all? No, no. That was the mother's <laughs> work. <laughs> Taking care of the kids, keeping the house and doing the cooking and doing the washings and doing the ironings. And that was a woman's work. So how old do you think the kids were before the husbands started participating with the children? Well, I know my dad didn't, and uh, my husband didn't, so I don't know when they started helping with the kids. (laughs) Never. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I guess it was when the children started getting into so many activities in the schools and things that father started taking an interest in that, but I don't know about in the house, you know. What about hunting? When did they start taking the kids out hunting? Well, my dad, uh, when uh, my brothers grew up, he didn't take them until they were about 16. 
in the woods, you know, and training them to hunt. But I don't know now what, how old they are now before they take them out and train them. Did you ever carry a gun with the with you, or did the boys no, just get the gun? No, I, I never handled a gun. I don't, this day, I don't know how to shoot a gun. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm 92 years old, and I still don't bother guns. We had them, uh, my husband hunted all the time, but I never bothered his guns because I never liked them. And my dad always kept his hid so nobody knew where they were. And <laughs> So let me ask you this. Did you ever have a kid that was a picky eater? And how did you manage picky eaters growing up? No, mine were all good eaters. But now when one got about six years old, she got, if you filled her plate up, she did not want her food touching each other. And she had to have a a fork to eat part of it with and a spoon to eat the other part with. Which one was this? Sherry, my youngest daughter. That's funny. Oh, and there was uh, she was the only one. Now I've heard stories that my husband used to get fed food from a blender that they just blended up when he was like two weeks old and start giving it to him. Is this true? Was this over at the O'Neill house? No, I never. um, When I fed my children, I always just mashed the food up with a fork or something. But now, uh, later on, people got, uh, my sisters and all of them had the blenders and to blend the children's food. But not me. I never did. Seems like a lot of work. But uh, I don't know why I didn't, but I could have had one. (laughs) Did you feed the kids with a spoon, or did you let them feed themselves? Well, until they learned to use a spoon, uh, I fed them myself. But, you know, you'd teach them how to use the spoon, but most of them like to eat with their hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so how did you discipline seven children? Were they all pretty good? or? Yes, they were good children. And, uh, well, I'd like to do now, I'd put them in time out. And, and they'd watch other children play, and then they'd finally get up and be okay, you know. <laughs> And that's the way I did mine even when they got out playing with the, the neighbor's children, too. I'd, uh, they'd get kind of um, rowdy and uh, disagreeing, and I'd make them, uh, I had steps out back, and I'd make them sit on the steps. They'd watch other kids, and then they realized, you know, then that, it wasn't fun to sit on the steps, and they'd go back and play, and nothing else was ever said. <laughs> they got along good. <laughs> but now I don't know how the other people treated, did, you know. It sounds like a pretty idyllic childhood. You know, kids <laughs> that weren't picky eaters, and they were all pretty good. And yeah, they, they were slept. all good. And... uh 
they minded good because you tell them to go if they would not go any farther than you told them to, you know. Like they'd want to go play with one of the neighbor's children, and and that's where they would go, and that was it. Well, if you had some advice for anybody who was pregnant right now, who was all worried about feeding their baby and becoming a mother, what advice would you give them? Oh, I don't know this day and time what advice I would give them. <laughs> Everything's changed so. You just don't know. I get corrected a lot on when when mine had children of telling them, you know, things and then they'd correct me, so I just quit doing it. <laughs> well, I think you know what's kind of funny is I took care of my grandchildren the way I wanted to when I had them, but they took care of them, you know, the the way they wanted to when they had them. So uh, I took care of a lot of grandchildren. (laughs) Oh, goodness. It seems to me, though, that this day and age we are going back to basics more, and we're trying to uncomplicate a lot of these extremely complicated parenting styles that we've invented over the years. Yeah. We're starting to realize maybe we should sleep with our babies. Maybe we should breastfeed them because it's less to wash. Well, uh, (laughs) I've heard women say that if you breastfeed, babies are more uh, affectionate, you know, where you breastfeed them and they're uh, easier to take care of and all of that. But now I don't know. Well, I haven't seen any research about the affectionate part. Yeah. I think mostly it's Here's what I truly think. I think that if you as a mother feel good about what you're doing, then that passes through to your kid. Yeah. And that positivity is what makes all the difference. That's right, too. But, uh, well, now I know know, uh, some women that have breastfed their babies. uh, And, uh, well, my mother did, too. And they were all... They never got caused, uh, you know, they were affectionate when they were little and everything and didn't cause any problems or anything. How so, old were they when they stopped breastfeeding? I think it's uh, 12 to 15 months, you know, you start, about 12 months you start training them, mm. you know, from the breast and, uh, well... When they get old enough to uh, uh, maybe drink out of a cup, you can, and then by the time they're 15 months old, I guess you have them already trained, you know, to, uh, from the breast. That's all really cool. It's really cool to hear hear this, so thank you so much for sharing it. <laughs> thank you. Well, I have forgotten so much, though, over the years, you know. I, it doesn't sound like you've forgotten very much at 92 years old. Yeah. You're remembering how you ate. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, when they started the school was the problem there, you know. You have got to get them up, and you got to get them ready, and you got to feed them, and you got to make sure they get to school and uh, but I had uh, seven in school at one time and you made all their clothes right yeah and I made their clothes and 
Well, I would get two up at a time, and uh, Dad get uh, partially dressed, and then get two more up, and then the oldest one, uh, my son, he was the only boy, you know, and he he just stayed in his bedroom until everybody had come. <laughs> All the girls had a got almost ready, and he'd come out. <laughs> and I'd say, well, why are you standing there? So he said, well, what's the use? He said, I, I can't. <laughs> Couldn't get in the bathroom, Couldn't huh? get in the bathroom, and then he would <laughs> put on his clothes and come through the house, and he always had his shoes. Their shoes were sitting at the door, and he'd slip on his shoes and coat Go to school. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, he was so funny. <laughs> Were you homeschooled or did you go to school? I go, went to school. I started school when I was, uh, I believe I was seven, because back then they didn't start till seven years old, you know. Hmm. And uh, cold winters, who froze to death almost. <laughs> We had to walk a long ways, you know, to go to school because they didn't have buses running like they do now. How far did you have to walk? Well, it was three and a half miles to school and three and a half miles back. It was seven miles a day. And in the place where I lived, uh, there was more family. All the families walked together, you know. We had... There was about eight families that lived in the same place I did, and all the children and start school about the same time and walk together to school. Wow. And uh, But we moved uh, when I was in the... I was 11 years old. I think I was in the fourth grade when we moved from that place and went to Pineville. Down why did close you move? to the schools, and we rode the bus then, you know. So why did you move to Pineville? Well, my dad got a job. Uh, I see, where did he, I forgot where he worked, but anyhow, we had to move to get closer to the jobs. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you could take the bus. Yeah. Did and then you they, eat school they lunch? had to buy a bus then that we rode, you know, to school. Did you pack a lunch, or did you get to eat lunch there? Well, uh, when I went to uh, now when I went to the other school, we had to pack our lunch. But when I moved, we had hot lunches. Nice there. Yeah. Was it pretty good food? Oh yeah, they had good cooks. Old <laughs> country food. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> well, Grandma, thank you for telling us your story about. Being a baby in southern West Virginia between 1930 and 1950. Yeah. Any final words of encouragement? Uh, No, I don't think so. (laughs) Just do your best, right? This day and time, people don't take encouragement. (laughs) Thank you so much, Grandma. I appreciate it. (laughs) Well, thank you. Oh my gosh, Heather, thank you so much for interviewing Grandma Alfie. I I feel like I learned a lot. Uh, 
you know, I think these kind of stories give us a lot of insight into why our mothers and grandmothers might speak to us in a certain way about our children and the choices we make. And it kind of explains a lot of that tension. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, we're going to link in our show notes the History of Formula episode because the time that Grandma Alfie is feeding her babies is that same exact time that formula companies were gaining a lot of ground with marketing and kind of taking away the power of people to feed their babies while simultaneously telling them that this is the best thing for them. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I mean, I frankly think if you have had tension with your mother, your mother-in-law, um, your grandmother, you know, anybody about your choices to breastfeed, this is a really important interview to keep in mind. Yeah, forgive them. You know, don't take it personally. You can hear grandma in the in the end say, you know, when I ask her if she's got any advice for anyone, she says, nope, I don't give advice anymore. You know? Good on she's you, like, Grandma Alfie. <laughs> she goes, because it's, it's all different now and nobody wants my advice. And so she almost is like acknowledging, like, what I did for my kids is fine. And what you're doing for your kids is fine. And she's got a solid grip after 93 years. I think she's 93, maybe 92. (laughs) Uh, I think she's got a solid grip on, you know, what it means to just try to be a mother and how hard it is and how those decisions that you make are constantly called into question. And you're all just doing the best you can. And having that many children is humbling, to say the least. And she was a single mom, by the way. Yeah, pretty incredible life that woman has led. Yeah, she's the sweetest thing, and we love her so much. If you're pumping milk away from your baby at all, at work, or wherever you go, you deserve a bougie product to make that easier for you. You deserve a series chiller, and frankly, I could not live without one right now. The series chiller is an excellent way to store your breast milk safely, and it keeps your breast milk cold for 24 hours. It is the only thing I use to transport my breast milk to and from work. While I'm working, it's got a sleek and beautiful design, lots of great colors, high quality materials, and manufacturing. Series Chill also has other products that you might want to check out too. My personal favorite is the Milk Stash. They have a great nipple shield that actually changes colors, and it's not clear like all the other ones. (laughs) And you know how we feel about that. (laughs) Um, If you want to have your very own Series Chiller, please go to the link in our show notes and use code MILKMINUTE15 at checkout. That's MILKMINUTE15 for 15% off your Series Chill products. Enjoy. All right, so let's give an award today. This award goes to... Emma Milburn. And Emma says, deciding to wean my toddler was a hard decision. There were moments I loved, but the shirt pulling, hitting, and biting was getting out of control. We were down to one morning breastfeeding session, but I was ready to be done. It was hard diverting her away from my breast most days, but now it's been almost two months of no nursing. Occasionally, when she's sad or needs the extra comfort, she asks to snuggle my breasts. I think the cheek on boob warmth helps to soothe her. Sometimes she even gives them little kisses or tells me they're cute, which sometimes makes me want to start nursing all over again. (laughs) 
Breastfeeding has lots of ups and downs, but having these sweet little reminders of our breastfeeding journey and an extra boob snuggle makes it all worth it. This picture was after she ate her breakfast yogurt and needed some warming up, and she sent the sweetest picture of her daughter with a yogurt face snuggling her boob. Not nursing, just snuggling. Um, well, we love a good successful weaning story because they give all of our listeners out there some hope. Totally agree. And I love that it's not like a no boob access at all kind of deal. She somehow managed to wean while still letting her daughter be near her breasts and have a good positive relationship with that. Well, I'm kind of thinking her award should be the consistency queen because I know that it takes a lot of consistency to wean a toddler. Uh, For sure. So Emma, you are our new consistency queen and we love it. You keep those breast snuggles up and um, kiss your sweet yogurt face toddler for us. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into this special episode of the Milk Minute podcast. The way we change this big system, especially in Appalachia, that is not set up for lactating families, is educating ourselves, our loved ones, sometimes our providers, our communities, and our family. If you guys loved this episode or any other, um, we would love it if you could share something about us on social media, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or consider joining our Patreon where we give you lots of extras that nobody else gets. (laughs) We love you guys so much and we're here for you if you need anything. We really, really appreciate all the support that you give us for our amazing passion project going on three years of podcasting now so crazy. All right. Well, thanks guys. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. It's a myth.